Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I'm your host, Kay Simone, and welcome back for Henry Lewis Wallace Part 2. Now y'all are in for a wild ride, all right? In this episode, we are going to see the evolution of Henry's crimes, along with the dive into the investigation that resulted in his capture. Henry Lewis Wallace murdered 11 Black women in the early to mid-90s, and it wasn't until three Black women were raped and murdered in the span of four days in March of 1994 that Charlotte's police chief, Dennis Nowicki, became aware of a killer at all. See, the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department would end up issuing an apology to the citizens of Charlotte for not spotting the link sooner, but we all know what the issue was, as did the parents of the women that Henry killed. One woman stated that the police did not care because they viewed the young murder victims as fast girls who hang out a lot. Shauna Hawk's mother, Dee Sumter, said, the victims weren't prominent people with social economic status, they weren't special, and they were black, end quote. The world is fucked up, y'all. Let's talk about it. Okay, y'all, so before I get into anything, I want to give y'all a major trigger warning right out the gate. A baby is harmed in one of these murders, and in another scene, a baby is discovered alive in the apartment. These acts are very brutal and triggering, so I want to make sure y'all are prepared, and I will issue trigger warnings throughout the show. So in part one, I gave y'all Henry's background, along with the stories of Tashana Bethay, Sharon Nance, Carolyn Love, Shauna Hawk, and Valencia Jumper. I will be kicking off this episode with the 1994 murder of Vanessa Little Mac. And just know that between Shauna Hawk's murder in 93 and Vanessa's in 1994, Henry raped and murdered Audrey Spain and Michelle Stenson. And I will be linking Audrey and Michelle's stories to the show notes because they are just as important, y'all. And I wish I could include everything. This is a lot of information. But let's go ahead and get into it. So before I dive in too deep, I, I just want to let y'all know, I was in this live on TikTok and we were talking about Henry Lewis Wallace and the host of the live, I believe was from the area. And basically they mentioned how the communities were shocked when they found out that Henry was behind the murders. I mentioned before that Henry maxed who he really was for the sole purpose of being able to fit in. Everyone saw him as this polite teddy bear. Not a single soul suspected that he was the man responsible. I failed to mention in part one how meticulous Henry Lewis Wallace was with his crime scenes. I mean, when Henry first started killing, he was going through great lengths to clean up behind himself. I mean, he was wiping off fingerprints, repositioning bodies, and in some cases, y'all, he would take pubic hair and planted in the clothing that belonged to a significant other, even going as far as setting an apartment on fire to get rid of the evidence. And that brings me to how we ended part one with Henry setting Valencia Jumper's house on fire. Henry Lewis Wallace, y'all, was no motherfucking fool. And the evolution of his cleaning methods actually went downhill, resulting in his capture. But I believe that if Henry had kept this shit up, he would have been active for much longer. 
So February of 1994, Vanessa Mack was living in Charlotte with her two daughters, seven-year-old Natara and four-month-old Natalia, and she was working at Carolina's Medical Center. Vanessa graduated from North Mecklenburg High School and Gainesville Business College, and by all accounts, Vanessa was always happy, y'all. Like, people literally described her as hardworking, beautiful, smart, and bright-eyed. Henry knew Vanessa because he dated her sister Leslie Little in the past, and Leslie was working at the Taco Bell on Sharon Amity Road with Henry. Now, that Taco Bell location is also where he met Shauna Hawk and Audrey Spain. July of 1993 is when Vanessa showed up um, basically to this pizza parlor to meet up with her sister, and this was when she was introduced to Henry. Over time, she confided in him about her problems because she she basically viewed Henry as a big brother. Henry would even pick up Vanessa's daughter from daycare like he literally doted on her. What Vanessa didn't know is that Henry was stalking her for months on end and he started to have these fantasies of having rough sex. According to resources, they did go out a couple of times, but it was never romantic to Vanessa. It was only romantic to Henry. And this is kind of when the rejection began to set in. Leslie Little is quoted saying, he liked her, but she didn't like him. He was just somebody that would come in that we could basically laugh and kick it with, end quote. Now, after losing touch with Vanessa for a while, one day he spots her at a bus stop and he offers her a ride home. This is how he finds out where she lives. And her new apartment was located at 2945 Greenland Avenue. And Vanessa, not knowing that he's an absolute monster, also gave him her new cell phone number. So if you remember in part one, I mentioned how Henry had stepped out on Sadie and got another woman pregnant. Well, his child and Vanessa's child were basically said to be born around the same time. And while he should have been supporting the mother of his newborn, he was still consistently stalking Vanessa. And now there are no reports that mention that Vanessa has three children. So I do believe that she was pregnant with Natalia around the time that they had lost touch and around the time that Vanessa moved. So just to make sure that this is clear and put this into good perspective for henry to have met vanessa july of 1993 regardless of them losing touch natalia was like four to five months old when henry attacks vanessa meaning that he stalked her for months on angel so on february 20th of 1994 Barbara Rippey, and that's the grandmother of Vanessa's oldest daughter, Natara. She goes to her apartment to pick up her youngest, Natalia, as she did every Sunday morning so that Vanessa could go to work. Barbara arrived basically a little bit before 6 a.m. And she goes to the back door, and the back door is ajar. As she enters, she notices that the, her four-month-old, so Natalia, was asleep on the sofa, but she was still in her play clothes from the day before, and Vanessa was nowhere to be seen, not in the kitchen, not in the bathroom. She wasn't in her bedroom, but when Barbara did a double take in the bedroom, she realized that Vanessa was there, 
and there was a gray bundle of covers covering her. And so basically all Barbara could see was Vanessa's feet hanging over the side of the bed. Like, I can't, I can't imagine. We're only seven minutes into this episode and this is already horrible. And then she noticed something was wrapped around her throat and it looked like a pillowcase. So Barbara, of course, she scooped up the baby and then ran next door uh, so they can call 911. Dr. Sullivan performed Vanessa's autopsy the next day, and he observed evidence of blunt force trauma and strangulation. The ligature that Henry placed around Vanessa's neck was a long sleeve shirt and a towel. And Dr. Sullivan, he also observed small hemorrhages, um, and it was on the conjunctiva and on the skin of her face and in the muscles in the front of her neck, basically all indicating strangulation. So that was her official cause of death. So now I'm going to tell y'all what happened per Henry's confession. So at this point, if you ain't listened to part one, baby, I'm going to need for you to go ahead and run it back because Henry's a goddamn crackhead. And so we know he was addicted to crack, but his addiction had gotten much worse by this point. So the day he went to Vanessa's house, he knew that he was going to rob and murder her. Henry first called her a few times to make sure that she was home and basically was let inside with no issue. They talked for a bit about her, ba- about her baby and basically they were just catching up. What is real sinister is that during the conversation, like Vanessa, she's mentioning how she got her tax return and, you know, like she's thinking that they're catching up. Meanwhile, Henry's thinking about ways to get her in a position where he could attack her. So major trigger warning, y'all. So this strategic thinking, it went on for over an hour. And eventually Vanessa turned her back to get him something to drink. And Henry, he had stuffed a pillowcase inside of his shirt and he immediately whipped it out and wrapped it around Vanessa's neck. Instantly, Vanessa knew he was trying to kill her, but Henry was able to overpower her pretty quickly and dragged her to the bedroom, and he was demanding to know where the money was. At this point, he was really looking for his next fix, and we know that he was there to murder her. Henry was given the money from her purse, and um, he demanded that she give over the details for her debit card, like her debit card PIN. Vanessa was then forced to remove her clothes and she asked Henry if she, if, you know, like take this pillowcase from around my goddamn neck, at least like, if you're going to do this to me, like, can you not strangle me in the process? But she promised that she wouldn't scream, but Henry would only loosen it. He wouldn't take uh, the bindings from around her neck. Henry raped Vanessa and the whole time her baby was on the couch in the other room, y'all. And once Vanessa bent over to put her clothes back on, Henry tightened the pillowcase around her neck until she passed out. And then he added an extra t-shirt and covered her with blankets and pillows. Henry then watched over Vanessa's daughter, literally watched over her daughter until the baby fell asleep. And he knew that once he left, the neighbors would check in on her if she started quiet, if she started crying, excuse me. And he even said in his confession that this is why he left the back door open. Like, nigga, what? Like, it, 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 it doesn't get better from here, y'all. 
He is raping and murdering women while their children are present. That is just, it's just so far beyond. So again, he even says in his confession, that's why he left the back door ajar. And he made sure to wipe away fingerprints before leaving. Uh, But let me tell y'all something. (laughs) And shout out to you fucking Vanessa. Vanessa Little Mac is the bad bitch. Henry goes to the ATM to try to use Vanessa's car. Baby, it declined. Vanessa gave him the wrong pin code on purpose. So Officer Jeffrey um, Bumgarner of the CMPD, he was the first to arrive on scene. He finds Vanessa lying on her back uh, on the bed and she had a towel around her neck and blood was coming from her nose, ears, and the back of her head. And the officer Bumgarner, he also noticed that her purse and its contents were scattered across the bed. One of the other officers arrived on scene and he said, and I quote, the killing was brutal. It was the most extreme case I've ever seen, end quote. Now, police, they begin their investigations and they noticed that there was no forced entry and nothing was disturbed. But the state of Vanessa's purse, however, led them to believe that a robbery had taken place and maybe that bank card was missing. So the police began to look at ATMs in the area. And again, Henry tried to use Vanessa's card, but he knew that there might be cameras. So he kind of tried to like hold his head down while he was at the ATM. But the police could tell that it was a black man with a single gold earring. And unfortunately, the footage wasn't clear, so they couldn't get a good identification. But this does bite him in the ass later. So the same night that Henry murdered Vanessa Little Mac, this motherfucker cuts on the news, checking to see if there was a report on the murder. There was nothing, y'all. Radio silence. Nothing about her murder. Nothing about the other Black women who were murdered. CMPD fucked this case up so bad that detectives from other states were flabber and gasted that they hadn't connected that this was the work of one killer. Like the CMPD, they, they should have known in early 1993 what the fuck was going on. And I mentioned in part one that Henry, he did not fit the FBI profile of a serial killer back then. Like he was big, he was black, and the authorities viewed black people of people of low intelligence. And so now we are about to get into how he gets sloppy. As Henry's drug addiction gets worse, he doesn't space out his crimes and he doesn't really clean up after himself. Now, after failing to get the money from Vanessa's debit card, Henry was pissed the fuck off. And in the same month, Sadie McKnight had kicked him the fuck out because she found out that he was a drug addict. And I'm personally surprised that she stayed that long because if you have a baby on me, nigga, please. Now, Henry said in that quote, I asked her to try to understand what addiction was like, and she stood by me for a little while, but she left me when I really needed her most. I'm not blaming her for my actions because it started way before her, but the things that were going on within the last week, if she was just there when I needed somebody, these other three women would not be dead, end quote. So he's referring to Betty Buchum, Brandy Henderson, and Deborah Slaughter. 
So basically, because Sadie McKnight didn't want to deal with his drug-addicted, cheating ass, these three women lost their lives. By the next month, so in March, Henry is now homeless, and he is, he is extremely broke, back living in poverty. And he has a friend named Lamar Woods. And this man, Lamar Woods, was living with a woman named Brandy Henderson. Brandy Henderson was 18 years old, and together, her and Lamar have a 10-month-old son named Tyrese. So Henry is such a piece of shit that he went to their apartment hoping that Lamar was at work and had every intention of robbing and murdering Brandy. So on March 9th, the day Henry popped up at their home, Brandy wasn't there, but Lamar was. And Henry was pissed, but basically he holds this conversation with Lamar and spins the story that he's leaving town. So he just wanted to stop by for farewells. And Henry, after the conversation is over, he goes to leave, but then he remembers that he knows somebody else who lives in the same um, apartment complex. And that was 24-year-old Betty Bookham. Those who knew and loved Betty called her Susie. And everyone said that she did not have a bad bone in her body. Betty was living in the same apartment complex with her adopted daughter and worked as an assistant manager at the Bojangles restaurant on Central Avenue. And this is the same restaurant Carolyn Love and Sadie McKnight worked at. Henry needed money for crack and knew that Betty knew the combination to the safe at the Bojangles. Now, the problem was that he didn't know exactly where she lived. Let me tell y'all what this motherfucker did, y'all. He walked around the apartment complex until he spotted her Nissan. And then from there, figured out, you know, she potentially lived on the second floor. And he knocked on doors until he found her. This is going to get really bad, y'all. Like, y'all don't understand how many times I have tried to record this because of how bad these stories get. So y'all bear with me and trigger warning. Henry basically preyed on her kindness. Betty knew that Henry was Lamar's friend and she knew Brandy Henderson, so she let him inside. Once the opportunity presented itself, Henry attacked Betty and he placed her in a chokehold and Betty fought, bit, scratched, and clawed him. And when the police were interrogating Henry, he was actually able to show the scratches and the bite marks on his body. Like, you fucking go, Betty. And Henry was eventually able to overpower her and demanded the Bojangles safe codes. Betty pleaded with him to no avail, and she offered to take him to the bank. She told him that she would tell the police that this was just a robbery, like, I'm not going to name you, like, just please do not hurt me, literally begging for her life. And again, this is going to get dark, but no, nah, the world should know that Betty fought this man for 30 minutes scratching, biting, punching, and kicking before Henry could overpower her again. And Betty mentioned to Henry that um, she couldn't have sex because she had a medical condition. And basically at this point, she was trying to humanize herself to Henry. Like she was asking him, like, why was he doing this to her? And she even said, like, I thought you were a nice guy, but there was no way that she could humanize herself to Henry. And he raped her. When Betty eventually gets to her feet, 
I want to tell y'all these stories as horrible as they are, they have such empowering fucking moments because Betty gets to her feet, looks him in the eyes and tells him, I forgive you. You need help. After all that, that's what she told him. And Henry lost his mind and attacked Betty again and they scuffled some more. And at one point, Betty takes a glass and she clocked him upside his motherfucking head with it before being overpowered again. Betty resisted giving him information this entire time until she was near death. And Henry choked Betty unconscious. And once she revived, she gave him the information. And he was able to get about $80 from her wallet and then choked her until she fell unconscious and violently raped her again before strangling her to death. And before leaving Betty's apartment, he cleaned up and he stole the gold chain from around her neck along with her TV that he went and sold for crack. <sighs> so mm, the next day, he does come back to her apartment to make sure that she was still dead and he stole more items to pawn for drugs. He ends up running into a maintenance man, a policeman, and a neighbor. They all spot Henry around Betty's apartment. Betty Buchan fought for her life for 30 fucking minutes in this apartment complex and I need to let y'all know that nobody called the police Nobody checked on her. Henry was able to steal her Nissan as well. And he runs into all of these people and no one suspected a fucking thing. Now, Henry has Betty's Nissan, probably thinking that he's done got away with some shit. And he would end up keeping her vehicle for about two days before he thought that the police might be on to him. Like now he's becoming a little bit paranoid. He wiped down the interior and other surfaces, but y'all, he forgot to clean his prints off the trunk of her car. Keep that in mind for later. Betty was supposed to report to work as scheduled on March 9th and the 10th. After repeated calls to her went unanswered, Betty's supervisor and her mother called the police department and reported Betty as a missing person. Maintenance personnel performed a wellness check and they found Betty lying face down on her bed with the towel around her neck. And this was an hour after they had reported her missing. So they were informed that her body was found. Dr. Sullivan performed Betty's autopsy on March 11th. He observed blunt trauma injuries and evidence of strangulation, including a ligature in place around her neck. The ligature consisted of a small sheet or pillowcase in a knot with an additional towel wrapped between the skin of her neck and the sheet. Dr. Sullivan would later testify that he also observed injuries that were consistent with the struggle. Betty had abrasions on her left shoulder, both arms, the right up her right upper chest, her abdomen, and a blunt trauma injury to her head with abrasions over her right forehead. Internally, she had blood buildup in her lungs, an enlarged brain, and evidence consistent with strangulation. So strangulation was Betty's official cause of death. CMPD, they noticed that Betty's house had been ransacked and they noted that her car was missing. So they began to search local pawn shops and they're cruising around with hopes of finding her vehicle. So far, a part of Henry's face 
has been revealed from when he went to the ATM to try to use Vanessa Little Mac's card. Now he has left Prince on the back of Betty Buchan's vehicle. So the police were about to connect the dots, but not before Henry went back to the residence of Lamar Woods and Brandy Henderson. This is where we get to the point of where Henry harms a baby. The baby does survive this attack, but it is very triggering y'all so skip if you must we know that brandy henderson was living in an apartment with her boyfriend lamar woods and their 10 month old son tyrese on the same day that he murdered betty buchum he returned to their apartment complex after 5 p.m because he knew lamar would be at work brandy was now home alone with tyrese and when Lamar went to work, the house was neat and it was tidy and he made sure to lock the door behind him on his way out. When Lamar returned home around midnight, he found the front door unlocked, his house was a mess and items were missing. And he found his baby in his bedroom sitting, well, he was laying on the bed gasping for air and something was stuffed inside of this baby's mouth and a pair of shorts were basically tied around his neck like a ligature. And so Lamar, he immediately begins to work to remove the ligature from around his baby's neck. And that's when he realizes that Brandy was lying face down on the bed. And when he rolled her over, she was blue in the face and had two towels wrapped around her neck. After freeing Brandy and Tyrese from the ligatures, of course he dialed 911. And dispatch had to walk this man through trying to perform CPR on Brandy, but y'all, she was already gone. And Tyrese was then rushed to the hospital. Baby Tyrese was taken to Carolina Medical Center. And even though he was alert and breathing, it was very clear that he had suffered from the ligatures tied around his neck. This baby is 10 months old, y'all. They said that this baby suffered. He was so traumatized mentally and physically from the lack of blood flow to his brain that when they tried to stick him with the needle, he did not react, he didn't pull away. And due to the compromise to his jugular and brain, they said that he was not acting normally. So I implore y'all to skip this if you need to, um, but this is what we know per Henry's confession. When Henry came back to Lamar and Brandy's apartment, he was able to convince her to let him in by saying that he had to leave something for Lamar before leaving town. Henry did the usual, which was wait for a moment to attack. And when Brandy goes to get Henry something to drink, he told her that, okay, I'm not going to hurt you, but this is a robbery and I need all the money that you have. Brandy's looking at him like, nigga, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck do you mean? But she tells him that there is, you know, change that is stashed in a Pringle can. And Brandy then went to tend to Tyrese and pleaded with Henry to let her hold her son. And Henry tells Brandy, and I quote, I don't know if that will be a good idea for what we are about to do, end quote. He violently raped Brandy while choking her. And when she thought it was over, she went to pick up the baby and laid the baby across her chest. And Henry violently raped her again with this 10 month old child on her chest while he was choking Brandy to death. 
and at one point she passed out and Henry wrapped towels around Brandy's neck and strangled her to death. When baby Tyrese visibly became upset, Henry claims that he tried to find a pacifier or food for him, but he ultimately chose to tie a towel around his neck so that it would be difficult for him to breathe and so he would stop crying. Henry laid Tyrese next to Brandy's body. In his confession, he knew that that baby was struggling to breathe. On his way out, he stole food, the money from the Pringle can, their television, and their stereo. And he loaded all of these items inside of Betty Buchan's vehicle, who wouldn't be found until the next day. He sold the television and stereo for $175, and he used all of that money to purchase crack cocaine. Dr. Sullivan performed Brandy's autopsy on March 10th, and Dr. Sullivan observed minor blunt trauma injuries and lacerations. He also observed evidence of strangulation, including small hemorrhages in her eyes, over the skin of her face and neck, and in the muscles in the front of her neck, and the lining of her voice box. Brandy's cause of death was officially strangulation. I really want to make sure that this is clear because the dates of these autopsies were a bit weird to me. Um, so remember, Brandy was not home on March 9th when Henry came to her residence with the intent to rape and murder her. Instead, on that same day, he found Betty Buchum. Later on the same day, so still on the 9th, Henry went back to Brandy and Lamar's residence and attacked and murdered her. Brandy was discovered first and her autopsy was performed on the 10th. Betty Buchan was discovered on the 10th and her autopsy was performed on the 11th. And I want to further articulate how close Henry was to his victims because when Henry knocked on Brandy Henderson's door, she was on the phone with um, her cousin and his name is George Burrell. The next day, Henry and George they were sitting side by side on the couch watching the news and Henry was consoling George, expressing basically how sorry he was that this happened, assuring George that things would get better and that everything was going to be okay. Like, ain't that a motherfucking bitch? This man is attending funerals. He's assisting with filing missing persons reports. Like, <sighs> this motherfucker right here is something, is something else. So after the double murder of Betty and Brandy, the community was in a rage and this really lit a fire under their asses down at that motherfucking precinct. And the authorities, this is when they begin asking questions about, you know, like trying to make these connections. Who was trustworthy enough to be led inside these homes? Like what was the common connection? And when they began to compile a list of names that all these women knew... What was consistent was Henry Lewis Wallace. And then they began to piece together exactly how he knew everyone. Betty Buchan worked at the Bojangles with Sadie. Audrey Spain and Shauna Hawk worked at the Taco Bell. And at one point, Henry worked at a Golden Corral, and that's where he met Brandy Henderson. And the day after Betty, Betty Buchan's autopsy was performed, CMPD find her Nissan, and they tested the prints that Henry left on the trunk, and the test popped for an outstanding warrant for larceny. And remember the ATM surveillance that partially captured Henry, but it wasn't enough to identify him? Well, what do you know? The authorities were able to match it because he had on a necklace and gold earrings in some of the photos, so they were able to determine 
that he was the man responsible. He is the Taco Bell Strangler. Unfortunately, they did not get him in time before he murdered Deborah Slaughter. And mm, this Deborah Slaughter is his last victim. And wolf, Deborah Slaughter. Like, y'all gonna hear about this in a second. So Deborah used to work at the Bojangles on Central Avenue, along with Sadie McKnight and Carolyn Love. And that is when she met Henry. By March 12th, 1994, she was working at a Harris Teeter supermarket as a deli clerk. Deborah had lived in other states before moving to Charlotte to be with family. And at the time, her son was 18 years old and living in Atlanta. And I want to express this with the deepest meaning behind my goddamn voice when I tell y'all. Deborah Slaughter was such a force. Described as a tall, strong woman with an infectious laugh and a great sense of humor. Like by all accounts, she was all around happy and a nice person who loved her church. And Deborah would sing in the choir. And somebody was even quoted saying that she could beat that tambourine like nobody's business. When Wallace showed up at her door, it was with the intent to rob and murder Deborah. But he wasn't prepared, y'all. He was not prepared. Now, once inside her apartment, he waited for his moment to attack, and he did what he's been doing. Like, he waits for a particular moment when their back is turned. Like, he'll ask, okay, can I use your phone? Or can you get me something to drink? And so when Deborah turned around to get him something to drink, he pulled a towel from underneath his jacket and placed it around her neck. Henry took off Deborah's clothes and told her to perform oral sex on him. And Deborah looked this man in his motherfucking face and said, you are going to have to kill me before I do that. And in order to try to get her to comply, Henry tightened the towel around her neck and raped Deborah. Deborah was in a fucking rage, y'all. And once she got up, she told Henry, and I quote, my suspicions of you are confirmed. You are the one who has been strangling all of those women, end quote. Now, of course, Henry denied it, and he forced Deborah to give him the money from her wallet. But one thing about Miss Deborah Slaughter, she kept the knife on her, but Henry knew, Henry knew that she would have a weapon on her, so he made her dump her purse. When he went to kick the knife away, Deborah slapped the piss out of this man, and then she began to scream for the police. And Henry tried to overpower Deborah. Like, he tried tightening the towel around her neck. He tried sitting on top of her, but Deborah was not going, y'all. She did not stop kicking and screaming and beat his ass every chance she got. Henry eventually grabbed the knife that fell from her purse, and he stabbed her. Henry stabbed Deborah Slaughter 38 times, y'all. This man was over six feet tall, well over 200 pounds. And despite being viciously raped and beaten with two towels constricting her throat, Deborah Slaughter beat the dog shit out of Henry Lewis Wallace. Like, I cannot express this enough that all of these women fought until the very end. Now, 
after he knew that Deborah was dead, he smoked crack in her bathroom and left. Like, piece of fucking shit. And I'm so glad. Yeah, she beat the piss out of him. So Deborah Sada's mother would end up discovering her body later that day. And at this point, Henry becomes extremely paranoid. Like he was constantly checking the news, looking out of his window to see if the police was going to bust in at any moment. Like even the random footsteps outside of his door would send him into a full-blown panic attack. He was in complete anguish and suffrage and I fucking love it. So on March 14th, Dr. Sullivan performed Deborah's autopsy. During the external examination, he observed a ligature around her neck and a sock balled up and stuffed inside of her mouth, holding her mouth open. The evidence of strangulation included the ligature around Deborah's neck and hemorrhages to her conjunctiva. And the ligature was comprised of two towels. The inner towel um, basically encircled around her neck and the outer towel tied tightly in a single knot. Dr. Sullivan also observed blunt trauma injuries and sharp trauma injuries caused by 38 stab wounds to the chest and abdomen, 15 of which individually could have been fatal. Dr. Sullivan determined that Deborah's cause of death was multiple stab wounds with strangulation as a contributing factor in her death. And the police were already looking for Henry prior to being notified of the death of Deborah Slaughter. But once they found out, they ramped up the search. I mean, they were staking out places that he frequented. They were going around his apartment and talking to everyone who knew where he could potentially be hiding. On March 13th, authorities tracked Henry down to a friend's house in East Charlotte, and this bitch-ass nigga was hiding in the bathroom, and that is where they arrested him on an outstanding warrant for larceny. Once they had him booked, they questioned him on all the murders and showed him all the evidence that they had accumulated over time. This motherfucker confessed to everything right away. For 12 hours, he told them in specific detail what he did to Tashonda Bethay, Sharon Nance, Courtney Love, Shauna Hawk, Audrey Spain, Valencia Jumper, Michelle Stinson, Vanessa Little Mac, Betty Jean Buchum, Brandy Henderson, and Deborah Slaughter. And Henry Lewis Wallace, I want y'all to, I want to point this out. This motherfucker hunted and preyed on these Black women since 1990, but their communities did not know that they were at risk until March 9th, yeah, March 9th of 1994. That is how long it took the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department to notify these communities that there was a man who was targeting them. So two days before Henry's first court appearance on March 15th, authorities found Carolyn Love's remains in the wooded area that Henry had placed her in in 1992. According to reports, Carolyn's family attended Henry's first court appearance and her sister Virginia had to be escorted out because what a bad bitch. Like she tried to jump three rows to beat Henry's ass as she should have. Now, Virginia said, and I quote, I thought about my mother. She had a heart attack worrying about her. Before she had a chance to find out what happened, it killed her, end quote. 
D. Sumter, Shauna Hawk's mother. Um, mind you, this is the woman who penned a letter to Shauna's murderer and pleaded with the public and police, um, you know, for support to find out who was responsible. She ended up finding out that Henry was her child's murderer on TV. Dee said it felt like a punch to her stomach and she fell to the floor with grief. Now, neighbors and friends who know Henry were completely shocked. And one man said, it's really just hard for a lot of people to comprehend how 10 women just perished like that. And no one really knew, end quote. Like the community was shocked and angry, which prompted calls for city council to investigate the CMPD. And I just want to give some more praise to Dee Sumter for a moment, because after the death of Shauna Hawk, Dee went on to create an organization entitled it Mothers of Murdered Offspring. And she worked with CMPD to provide sensitivity training to try to close the gap between the homicide departments and patrol divisions. Of course, after Henry was arrested, the CMPD, they tried to put on their hero hats. But let me tell y'all, they were not having it. Dee Sumter was not having it. She publicly said that the authorities should have made connections sooner, starting with her daughter's employment at the Taco Bell on Central Avenue. And the CMPD, baby, they were shocked that everybody was mad at them. They were really shocked that they were being held accountable for their fuck-ups. Henry's trial began September 30th, uh, 1996, so two years after his arrest, and this was due to multiple delays. Prosecutor Marsha Goodnow demanded the death penalty. Now, Henry's defense attorney, Isabel Day, requested life imprisonment, and her argument was that Henry suffered mental illness and the murders did not result from premeditation or deliberation. Jurors consisted of five white women, two black women, and five white men. And I'm I'm confused about this lack of representation because even the alternate jurors were white women. And Prosecutor Marsha Goodnow basically wanted everyone to focus on exactly how these women died and paint a picture of their final moments. She even said, like, the state doesn't really need to call any witnesses because all we got to do is play Henry's tape confession. Ultimately, Lamar Wood would take the stand to talk about the trauma of finding his son gasping for air next to the corpse of Brandy Henderson. And Deborah Slaughter's mother also spoke to the trauma of finding her child in the condition that Henry left her. Lovey Slaughter said later, and I quote, this is very hard. We had just started to heal and this was opening everything back up again. Now the case is underway and although nothing can be done to bring my daughter back, something needs to be done with the person responsible, end quote. Over the course of the trial, Henry's taped confession was played and the details surrounding the death of Audrey Spain of Valencia uh, Jumper were heard. Mind y'all, these families had to listen to Henry explain in graphic detail how he attacked their children, raped their children, strangled their children. Like, baby, Henry said in his confession that he knew that he was pulling up to rob, rape, and murder. And I also want to give y'all a quote. Um, by FBI profile Robert Ressler, and I believe that he also took the stand to talk to Henry's capacity to be a serial killer. He said, and I quote, 
If he elected to become a serial killer, he was going about it the wrong way. Mr. Wallace would take one step forward and two steps back. He would take items and put them in the stove to destroy them by burning them, then forget the, uh, to turn the stove on, end quote. Now, in no way am I defending Henry Lewis Wallace. Like, fuck that nigga. But they really tried to paint this man as an idiot. And I tell y'all time and time again, the FBI, the authorities, they think of us as low, intelligent beings. They don't think that we are smart enough to commit these atrocities. Hence why this motherfucker was able to go on as long as he did. They simply didn't give a fuck. And the FBI actually dropped the ball as well. In 1994, the authorities went to the FBI for help and were told that the murders were not the work of a serial killer. This man was able to pre present himself as someone completely different to the point of where the significant others and family members of his victims became suspects before he did. He was attending funerals and he helped file missing persons reports. To this day, people say that the way Henry hid who he really was was so meticulous that if it weren't for his drug addiction, he would never have been caught. His drug addiction made him sloppy and reckless, and the CMPD and FBI allowed these deaths to go on for far too fucking long. Now, during his trial, psychologists testified that Henry was a victim of physical and mental abuse at the hands of his mother um, since birth and had mental illnesses during the murders. When Henry raped and murdered these women, he was not thinking about his mother. He was thinking about his ex-wife and then blamed his ex-girlfriend for the death of three innocent women. I don't know if y'all noticed, but they always want to point at abuse that people suffer as children, but this motherfucker was just fucked up, like, point blank, period. <laughs> so January 7th of 1997, he was convicted um, of nine counts of first-degree murder, eight counts of first-degree rape, two counts of first-degree sexual offense, and two counts of second-degree sexual offense. Now, the mental illness and abuse suffered during childhood, it, it ain't save Henry, not one bit. But while the jurors deliberated for 14 hours, they did discuss his youth, the sexual abuse he suffered as a child, and mental illness. But ultimately, they decided that Henry knew what the fuck he was doing, y'all. On January 29th, Henry was given nine death sentences, 10 consecutive life sentences, and 322 years in prison. And I was trying to look, you know, sometimes at the end, like the judge will say something impactful, but he really just said, yeah, we about to kill you. God have mercy on your soul. Henry went on to get married in prison, but fuck him and his wife, <laughs> like, all the love in the world and you choose a pedophile rapist and a murderer yeah girl fuck you too and henry is actually still waiting for his death date and has since attempted appeals which have been denied it is believed now that henry may have murdered more women while he was in the navy but he is refusing to talk uh, um, unless his sentence is reduced to life in prison. So authorities believe right now that there are other victims of Henry Lewis Wallace, but he's not talking unless he gets what he wants. And I kind of want to end this on Baby Tyson. Uh, so Baby Tyson grew up 
Um, I'm sorry, baby Tyrese. Uh, baby Tyrese grew up and he actually ended up providing an exclusive interview on ABC's 2020. And I want to end this with a quote from him because this man beat the odds of brain damage and still got up to honor his mother for her strength. Uh, so he said, and I quote, truthfully, I wanted to die for a long time. As I started learning more, I figured that'd be too selfish. She fought too hard to keep me alive and that's why I survived. That's why I didn't die. There's no time frame on grieving. There's no time frame on how long you can or can't miss somebody. I went through all of that. So I've got to be I've got to be doing something great for her. I've got to do something to the point where she can say, "I'm proud of you, son." End quote. Way to fucking go, Tyrese. I know that's right, y'all. I have been going through it with Henry Louis Wallace, and I'm definitely glad to be done with this sad, sick motherfucker, y'all. So, baby, this is the end of Henry Louis Wallace Part 2. If you tuned in and rocked with me, you can show your support by giving me a five-star in the review on Apple and Spotify. If you want to send me an email, please reach out to blackgirltruecrimepodcast at gmail.com. My TikTok is ksimone93, and my Insta is blackgirl underscore truecrimepodcast. I do want to thank y'all for tuning in, and next week, I will be bringing y'all Jonestown Part 2. I don't give a fuck if I gotta go get Sammy myself and bring that bitch here. We are giving y'all Jonestown Part 2, and then I will also be going over reviews. Again, I want to thank y'all for listening, and I will catch y'all next week.